Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Steve Orlando, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social media. Do it. First up, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Marvelists. Find myself on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. You can also find me on Instagram at Peter Melnick. Same thing with Instagram. And remember, just like the song... The whole wide world, although it's about finding a lover more, this is about finding an Eddie Wilson. This one... There's only one way to rock. What? There's only one way to rock. Steve, Sammy Hagar. Eh, Good enough. Anyway, the only place you can find Eddie in the whole wide world on the worldwide interwebs is Instagram, and that is at... Eddie9193. And we can also listen to this show, we, you, me, Dupree, and the gang, and Marley and me, and everybody. We can listen to this show on a wide variety of streaming platforms, which include TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, among many, many others, wherever you can shake an RSS feed stick at, whatever works. I don't know, that that anecdote kind of stuff. I liked it. I liked it. Thank you. I I try. But you can also find this show on iTunes, where be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And when you're on social media, let people know you're listening to the show. Tag us in post. Let people know, hey, I assure you guys, they don't suck. So, Eddie, since the last episode, a lot has happened, Mm. and a lot has happened in the sense that we have a very special guest on the line, and he is new to the fold of the Marvel Universe. He is coming over from the Distinguished Competition, and we're glad to have him. He is Steve Orlando. Steve, good afternoon. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me here amidst uh, a enormous windstorm in Boston, so, you know, mm-hmm. hello from New England. We shared that on the East Coast down in New York, yeah. And first off, we just got to ask, what got you into Marvel growing up? Well, you know, like, I, for a long time, was a DC person, but when I think back to my first comic ever, it was actually a Marvel book. I, I um, And I've said it before, my first book I ever read was in the 80s, and it was West Coast Avengers 16, uh, which is a tale of two kitties. It's about Hellcat and Tigra battling Tiger Shark and each other for uh, the control of the cat costume that, that Hellcat wears. So very deep book, um, but it was the first thing I ever read, uh, first comic I ever read. Um, and then, you know, I was still just buying stuff at flea markets back then, so I wasn't really aware of what was current or what was not. By the time I was, it was the early 90s and the Clone Saga was happening. So I, even my second entry point into comics was Clone Saga, Web of Spider-Man that I bought off a spinner rack at a Walden book. So Marvel stuff has been there uh, from the very beginning for me. And I've always had an affectation for whatever reason for that West Coast Avengers roster. It's probably why. You know, like to me, the vision is always in an all-white costume and Hank Pym is always wearing... Uh, you know, essentially a mechanic onesie. 
And recently, you know, they just did a West Coast Avengers run over at Marvel, and you never know, depending on, you know, how things go. I could kind of see a Steve Orlando West Coast Avengers maybe one day down the line. Oh, man, it would be, it would, it would be a, a heavy battle between West Coast Avengers and the Great Lakes Avengers uh, for, my, for my affection, to be clear. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but, but I would be there in a second. Now you're, now you're uh, Great Lakes Avengers, you're GLA. Are you going to include Squirrel Girl or not? Uh, I would, you know, I'd love a crack at Squirrel Girl. The weirdly, the character that most fascinates me there is Mister Immortal. Um, like I, I have, you know, as with any creator, there's a laundry list of people I think have a lot of potential, and for whatever reason, he's always been one of them for me. Um, I don't know, like I, he was taken in a great comedy direction in the slot uh, and, and Pelletier series. But I think there's a lot of profound stuff that can be done with him, too, when you really think about his life and, and the idea that he's going to be the last one around ever. So I don't know. Like, uh, I love a lot of those characters. Doorman, as well, also seems like uh, sort of a goofball power, but it's kind of a fascinating power. So, yeah, I'd love to have Squirrel Girl on the team. I'd love to dig into a lot of those people who maybe have uh, abilities and sort of personalities that they're often played for laughs, but I think there can be something underneath as well. I kind of like the idea of a... I've noticed this with, like, some of the comedy writers that will come in will take a character that's known for comedy, or not known for comedy, known for, like, being serious, and make them into comedy characters. And you'll see a serious writer such as yourself take a comedic character and bring him into more of a serious tone. I like that. I like that you said I was a serious writer. Yeah. That's the thing that... <laughs> well, this is true, so... Just saying. Are there some characters, Steve, that you uh, not necessarily wanted to necessarily do, but just that you just would sit back, read, and just enjoy, re- you know, reading about and stuff? Oh man, well, the, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's always. Um, I mean, there's certain things. It's funny. Like I, I the best example is, is actually things like, you know. I love a good Spider-Man run, for example, but I almost, for whatever reason, you know, there's always that one, there's that white whale of a character. No, I shouldn't say white whale because white whale is just the one. I would have to really think about what my specific take is, and it's funny because he's an, he's an icon, right? But it's a perfect example of what you're saying. I love so much about what he means uh, and, and, and in the Marvel Universe and the fans, but sometimes there are characters that I definitely like. I'm also just excited to be a fan of, and as you said, kick back. Uh, and, and I love that with him because there's such a strong legacy and it was one of the first modern books I've read, even if it was Ben Riley back then. So, uh, he's a huge character, but it might be a good example. Like I love just reading that. Uh, I would obviously like nobody turns that down if you get the opportunity and he is in uh dark hole. Uh, but at the same time, like I'm always a fan when I'm reading that. And I'm always a fan when I'm reading like the, the all of the Kirby stuff in Marvel as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, I love specifically Black Bolt. Again, there's a reason, uh, you know, when I'm first in the, uh, in the door of Marvel, he's in Darkhold. Um, but at the same time, I'm just so in awe of what he created from Eternals to Inhumans to obviously the majority of, uh, you know, the, the infant Marvel universe, uh, from, from X-Men to Hulk, uh, almost everything that is, uh, still core to it today. So, um, I love that Kirby energy, uh, especially the huge world building of things like Inhumans and Eternals. I would jump at the chance, but also I love getting into that from a, from a reader's point of view. Sure, that's great. Now, as a light, you know, a longtime fan of Marvel for myself, 
I've had like a bit of a difficulty getting into the Inhumans. There's just there's something about them. Maybe it's just from my you know experiences trying to get into the characters. I just couldn't get into them. What would be your selling point to make me a non-Inhumans reader want to read something with the Inhumans? Well, you have to be a strange person like me. I mean, so that's sort of the I, I sort of laughed myself because. Uh, I almost wonder if I can explain why I like them. Like I, you know, everyone around me around me is always sort of puzzled by the characters that I like. Um, so I'll get around to answering, but it also kind of is is entertaining me because yeah, like I'm a guy who likes Gandalf more than Frodo and and Aragorn, and I like Doctor Manhattan more than Rorschach or Night Owl. You know, the characters that are supposed to be relatable. Um, so maybe it's maybe it's something wrong with me that these characters with uh, inhuman, no pun intended, problems and like you know vast societies that are nothing like our uh, our own world uh, are so appealing to me. But I think for the Inhumans as well, I would say that it is if you get back to the core of the idea, the appeal to me has always been the trade-off between them having these fantastic, fantastic powers. And at the same time, more weaknesses in some ways and being so isolated by them. And that sounds like I'm describing mutants. Uh, but the Inhumans, especially at the beginning, remember, their immune systems were extremely, extremely weak. So even more than mutants who, yes, are hated and feared, like, they had these incredible powers, but they had to build this inward society because they couldn't uh, expand. They couldn't explore. And, and obviously, like, they've gotten away from that in some ways with the Inhuman expansion. And now everything has happened to death of the Inhumans. But that core idea, like they were advanced beyond us, but they were also so much more limited than us. And it's forced them to innovate inward and rebuild the society over and over again within themselves because they can't expand outward, because our world, despite all their power, is so toxic and dangerous to them. Um, and I just find that fascinating. You know, like as humans, we always tend to expand outward uh, and, and up. And because of their own physiology, they both have greater abilities than us, but also have to look inward. And so that sort of that sort of struggle uh, to con constantly reinvent themselves uh, within these very strict confines, I've always found fascinating, uh, and and that's what's appealing to them to me. But, you know, and that plays out throughout their society. But it's also the the classic contrast of Black Bolt. You know, he is he is their most powerful leader. At the same time, look how much of a price he pays for his power. Yeah, it's and true. So. I think you get these dramas that encapsulate our own human struggle in, in the most sort of broad, mythic, Kirby way possible, right? Like, and it's all, it's all in Black Bolt, but it's in all of them. Uh, what do they give up? What are the, what's the contrast? What's the contradiction of, of, of their abilities? You know, they're, they're, they're gods who have no immunity to the common cold. Uh, and, and I've always sort of found that contrast fascinating. And then they, you know, of course they um, they're relegated, so to speak, to uh, the moon for a long time. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, the question of where they are now, well, uh, is something I'd be excited to tackle when it comes to Marvel. I'll admit, when you meet Black Bolt and Dark Bolt, he's walking on Mars, uh, deep in thought, um, when the story picks up. So, uh, you know, will uh, the question of what's next as they went searching for home at the end of their last appearance? Uh, it's a big question, and I don't, you know. Uh, once things return to normal, I would love to explore further if there's a chance. Now, you just, you had also mentioned in regards to characters that you know you relate to or gravitate towards. I imagine like then 
if we go like Ninja Turtles, for example, you're not going to go with the ones like Raphael or Michelangelo, correct? You would be more interested in Donatello or uh, Leonardo? Well, you would think that, but bizarrely, uh, I've always been, well, as a kid, like everyone, I was a Michelangelo guy. Um, but well, I recently party rewatched the 1990s movie and realized that as an adult, I myself am definitely a Raphael. Um, so it, but to answer your question, actually, I like Splinter the most, and that should be the most telling. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's actually none of them. It's the, it's the ancient sensei that is also a rat and can beat Shredder in one move uh, and, with, with some, and some bold pronouncements. Uh, and, yeah, Splinter was my favorite character from top to bottom. If I had to pick a turtle, it would be Raphael, but that's because I, uh, I don't have time for bullshit like so many people. Now, going back over to the beginning of your career, how did you get your start, and what were some of the hurdles you had to bypass getting into the comic industry? Uh, I mean, I, I was breaking the comics for a long time. Uh, I started going to conventions, and probably about when I was 12, uh, and I, at the time, was like a new X-Men reader, and I had just, I had already started scripting because I had found some scripts online, but when they did the Nuff Set issue, uh, you know, when they published Grand Script in the back, it really sort of gave me a window into how to script a comic. So I took my bad X-Men script, and I went to Wizard World 2000. I started asking writers and editors for advice. Um... And they all, you know, were very patient with this 12-year-old boy <laughs> and, uh, and told me some basics and said to come back next year. And I met at that year my, my two the people who had become my mentor. My mentors, Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel, who at the time, a couple of years before that, had just gotten off X-Men. They were on X-Men with uh, Brandon Peterson and Chris Pachalo. And, uh, you know, every year starting in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I would come to San Diego Comic-Con after that. I would bring them a new script. I would bring them a new idea, a new pitch, new produced comic pages, and they would tell me what had to be better. And I did that, uh, well, um, for almost 20 years. Uh, from age 12 to 28, uh, I did that. And I came back every year. I kept working. I kept hearing what had to improve and did my best to improve it. Uh, and kept networking, and when I finally had something that was in their eyes publishable, they helped me out, and they connected me to the Eric Stevenson, who's the publisher of Image, and that's how my book, Undertow, came to pass. And at the same time, I had been building relationships at Vertigo in D.C., uh, so that when I finally did have, uh, you know, publish, uh, publishable work and, and, and credits to my name, I was positioned uh, to take advantage of any opportunities there, so... 2012, I sold Undertow. I had been at that point trying to break in for 12 years. Uh, and over the course of those next two years, we produced that book. And around 2014, uh, the book was out. It was getting good reviews. And it finally gave me a chance to pitch, uh, to pitch then Batman editor Mark Doyle on Midnighter. And that's how I finally got in. You know, it was a, it was a 12 to 15 year overnight success, <laughs> as many people say. And, uh, and I haven't looked back since. Now, when you ended up going over to D.C., what was the first title that you had worked on? My first, my first ongoing in D.C. was Midnighter. I had done two shorts for Vertigo in 2012 and 2014 as well. 
Now, the Midnighter run, a lot of people I've seen, you know, general consensus on the Internet is it's a very underrated series, and it's just a phenomenal book to check out, especially, you know, with the character. What gravitated you towards Midnighter? Well, you know, I mean, uh, he was an important character for me as a kid because he, you know, the pendulum's kind of swung the other way as representation goes, but as a kid, uh, in the late 90s, there was, you know, really only sort of one type of LGBT representation. It didn't, it didn't really connect with me, uh, you know, when it came to television and media. So when I saw Midnighter and I saw this, like, character that was, Showing at the time that there was like no one way to be uh, to be a queer person. He was so different. He was so unapologetic. Uh, it was really empowering to me, and he was cool as fuck. So like I was, you know, I I, I liked it from the start. Not to mention the fact that Warren Ellis had given these interviews saying that he was the shadow by way of John Woo, and the shadow is my favorite like fictional character, like not Mar- not favorite Marvel or DC character, but just my favorite character. So, like, to be fair, he's been at both. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The Shadow, Uh, wow, that's a hell of a throwback. Yeah, well, I mean, I I wrote The Shadow as well, and I jumped at that chance. So it was a a huge thing uh, to be able to get Midnighter because, yeah, he was really based on... uh, my favorite character that, you know, in, in existence. So... I followed him for a long time, and I had opinions about the other people that worked on him, but when it, when it came time, you know, and they merged the Wildstorm universe into the DC universe, uh, I just, I shot my shot. You know, they asked what character I would want to write, and he was a bucketless character for me, and I figured if I was only going to write one DC book ever, which is always possible, uh, I should write one that I'll be proud as hell of, and, that, and that's how Minetta came to pass. We worked on the pitch for about four months, and we were in production uh, before we knew it. After again, fifteen years of of rejection, but that's that is how breaking in goes. You're working and you're working and you're working, and then it suddenly happens, and you know the the the, the horse is out of the stable. Teddy, I was going to say then with the shadow, what uh, what time frame was that 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 came about for you? When did I write the shadow? Uh, so I I think that came out within the, the past. I think it was 2017 release. I'm trying to think. It was probably 2016 and 2017 uh, because Riley Rossman and I worked on the Shadow and Batman miniseries at DC, uh, and then that we used our partnership there to launch into doing Martian Manhunter, which was my probably one of my probably my favorite, if not one of my favorite DC books and books I've ever written. Uh, and our book before that was Batman Shadow. I then did a follow-up Shadow Batman for Dynamite as well. So. I was well known as a shadow fan at DC. Uh, I put my head together with Scott Snyder on the Batman shadow crossover. And then Dynamite had me do the follow up uh, myself where we dug into Batman uh, and the shadow and Damien uh, Robin as well. Um, And more of the shadow lore. But I mean, it's funny. I owe a lot to that book and the happenstance of being on exclusive with the, with DC while they were doing this crossover, because that's how I met Riley Rossmo. Probably my favorite uh, collaborator I've ever worked with, uh, definitely one of them, uh, and 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 one of my one of my closest artistic friends. So, yeah, we sort of rebuilt the shadow from the ground up there uh, for the modern moment, and it really pleases me because a lot of times when I sign the book at cons uh, or or I meet readers of the book bu- of of the book, 
this is the first time they've encountered that character and, and they've come to love him. And to me, I've done my job if that's the case, because it's a character that's, you know, older than Batman, older than Superman. Uh, and if we've freshened him up in the right way, but kept the core and showed people why he's great, you know, what more is there to our job than that? Like share your love of a character in a way that is fresh and intriguing. Uh, and you know, it's a pretty big challenge when it's an almost 90 year old character, but it's, you know, yeah, I was going to say, did. The, awesome. the Shadows, a character has been around for so, so long, and there's been many uh, versions or runs, I think mostly DC, and I remember a couple of them that I do possess, but uh, but unfortunately have yet to read, and I'm thinking of one that ran about 19 issues, but I think it was pre, for sure, 2017. It was, um, I think Howard Chaykin did the artwork. Oh, my friend, that's pre, that's, that, that's for me. First of all, it's a great run. Uh, Chaykin was the 1980s. Um, yes. Oh, and the follow-up to that is also great. It was taken on the on the on the repositioning miniseries, and then the follow-up was a Murderer's Row. It was Andy Helfer writing it? Uh, the lead artist on that was Sinkevich, and when Sinkevich left, they replaced him with Kyle Baker, who was also incredible. Uh, it was a great, great run. Probably my favorite run of the Shadow, uh, to be to be honest. There we go. Now, what is it like working on a character that you have such a strong connection with, with the Shadow? And then you're also being told, by the way, on this book, you're going to be doing a story with one of the single most popular characters of all time, one of the most iconic, recognizable characters in the world. That must be a huge thrill. It is. I mean, I had written Batman before, but it is always a challenge working with Batman. You can never get, you know, he, you can never get, for lack of a wor- better word, comfortable. <laughs> because, and he always works nights. Uh, you know, you... First of all, you can never get comfortable at all. Like in many ways, our job as creators is to approach working on Batman as the same as if I was working on uh, Firebird or Joe Costa. Okay, you know, like either way, we have to give everyone our all. Um, but I will say, like working on the ba- on Batman in the Shadow to me presented a really exciting opportunity because you did have a character that sort of is a rare. Uh, a rare occurrence it is a character who you can show influence Batman, one of the most influential characters, both within the narrative of comics and from the outside, from a business sense. And here we could examine them, him in contrast to someone who was essentially one of his antecedents. And so I took it as a really exciting opportunity. We had to push ourselves. And, uh, you know, that was a big question. It was a world's greatest detective uh, coming upon the world's greatest mystery uh, in, in the shadow. Uh, someone who can be anyone whose identity is always unclear and who's unknowable. And how does that enrage someone whose whole gimmick is that he can figure anything out? So, um, yeah, I mean, we dug heavy into those characters to find uh, how we could wring the most out of them. And it ended up, as I said, being probably my favorite time I've ever written Batman. uh, And definitely my, I mean, a lifelong goal to work with the Shadow. Now, on the topic of the Shadow, there uh, what would, would your dream portrayal of the character be as a live-action portrayal? Who would you want to see don that hat? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. I The Shadow is... Uh, honestly, the Shadow is cruel. Uh, it, it's one of the reasons I find him sort of fascinating. It's in that, it's in the Chaken series... It's even in the uh, the Alec Baldwin movie. Uh, he he's a bad guy who gets forced into being a hero, and so I feel like every time he's like punishing crime, he's really punishing himself. You know, uh, your your Batman and your Daredevils 
our, our, our Batman and your daredevils are, are inherently good people who have bad things happen to them and they react. The shadow is a bad person who essentially gets guilted into being good. Um, and once he, you know, once he gets his soul back, looks on everything he's done and is just so ashamed and is, is really punishing himself. So, and he enjoys it. I mean, even in that movie, he, he relishes driving Tim Curry insane. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he, there is a flair to him that really makes him skirt the line of being truly horrifying uh, in a way that I think is, well, you can see why he influenced Batman. But so to answer your question, it's uh, not Alec Baldwin as much as I like him, uh, you know, um, but it needs to be someone with a true sense of menace. Like in a way, if he hadn't already been General Zod, uh, the wild eyes of someone like Michael Shannon, I feel like, would be a very good shadow because he has that air about him. When even he's at rest, he seems dangerous. You know, like even that. when he's at rest, he seems like he could burst into into something depraved at a moment's notice. Uh, and also, his eyes are water. very expressive. And the shadow, and the shadow is all about the the look over the bandana. He has to glare at you, and you have to feel like the devil's looking at you. So. <laughs> Uh, and I've really put over Michael Shannon as being a great guy, uh, you know, in this podcast. Like, he looks like the devil, and he looks he could break into murder at any moment. But um, I think he would be incredible. It's that intensity that's key. You know, uh, the 94 movie got some things right, but it also played him like a Batman type. And the shadow is not as well adjusted by any means. I think he's manipulative. I think he, in many ways, he's more human because he's petty. He's manipulative. I mean, he saves people's lives. And then, you know, basically enlists them to work for him as repayment. So it's transactional. Uh, and I think all of it is very arcane and very draconian, and you need someone with that dark intensity. Um, so, yeah, I think that I would love to see a Shannon type. Uh, and they have to have a great laugh as well, which is a whole nother aspect of the character. I mean, you know, originally it was Orson Welles' voice with the shadow, so it's kind of hard to measure up to that, you know? Tough. And by the way, as an unrelated kind of thing, you had mentioned uh, Alec Baldwin working alongside Tim Curry. I think the biggest injustice, you know, due to circumstances beyond our control, how amazing would it have been to see Tim Curry in a Marvel or DC movie alongside a lot of the actors we have nowadays? Oh, it would have been great. It would have been great. It's, it, is, uh, it, it is very much too bad. Um, also, I'm sure you guys know that he was the original voice of the Joker in Batman the Animated Series. If you want to talk about a strange coincidence that went, you know, in a history went in a wildly different direction. Um, and his laugh but shows Curry was the original in, uh, voice before Mark Hamill. Yeah, and his laugh shows up in uh, one of the episodes. I think it's within the first three. Like, you can hear it as like a background noise. Oh, I'm just saying he would be great in the MCU. You're absolutely right. It's uh, like so many people that, that you would like to see there, uh, but especially like the iconic character actors like him. Um, it would be, I don't know who he would be, but it would be, it would, were it to be possible, would be fantastic. If he's still able to do voiceover work, I would love to see him maybe do something alongside Taika Waititi or James Gunn, because I feel like they could pull something out of him through one of the, you know, the cosmic characters or one of the, you know, as guardian characters, something could work with that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, yeah, if you got really big into the sort of leering and, and, and sort of 
opaque cosmic end of Marvel, he could be very good in that world. You know, the people like the stranger, people like the in-betweener who have an inherent mystery to them. Um, I think he would be very, very good. Um, I think that who am I? There's like, I don't know if I like him for like eternity, but I do think that that sort of like that, that voice where it's clear that there's something so cerebral going on hmm. uh, and almost unknowable to, to, to mere mortals, I think would be uh he would excel at such a thing. Would a character I like, are, I was going to say that a character like the living tribunal fit into that uh, cosmic category too. Oh man. I mean, I, lo- I don't see that's the thing. I love living tribunal because he's basically Marvel's version of the specter. And I love the specter. Oh. I feel like Tim is like one voice of the Living Tribunal, right? But he's got multiple heads. Um, and like maybe another one is Brian Blessed. Maybe they're all just, maybe they're all just extremely loud, distinctive British actors. And it's funny, uh, last, uh, last Terrificon, last August, there was a person who, who cosplayed as him. Did a great job, too. And um, I might have even seen that. I was at Terrificon. At the Tribunal, as the Tribunal, yeah. Great guy. One of the uh, things in regards to, you know, all of that also as well, I think maybe Tim Curry could have even been great involved with Sandman as one of the Endless, because that would be an interesting thing to see. I mean, he would have been very good in that. Um, I also think, like, if we're talking, if we're slipping over to Sandman lore, if it was like, he would also be a great voice for Kane. Like, imagine his relish as he's, like, repeatedly murdering his brother over, you know, eons. Uh, I feel like it would be it would be a great great portrayal of what is probably a, a CG enhanced character, but um, I know that's a step down from being one of the endless. But I do think I could just like picture that I could picture that sneer as he's just like bashing Abel's head in with a rock. So uh, that would maybe be my vote for the Sandman universe or Merv Pumpkinhead. You know, like if you want to go completely to the left, I like that. Now. In the upcoming months, you know, when things go back to normal, we're going to be seeing some new comics coming out from Marvel, and one of them will be yours. So tell the audience at home, what is the project you're working on? And not we obviously we can't ask what's going to happen, because, you know, then we're not going to pay for the book, apparently. But <laughs> what happened? Eh, sell the book, please. <laughs> Well, Darkhold is uh, Darkhold is a, a mini event in the style that you've seen in like uh, Time Warps or Secret Warps or 2099, all of those events. But its uh, its structure is somewhat more unique. I shouldn't say that, uh, but its its structure is 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 a little more focused in the way that uh, I did the event Milk Wars uh, at DC with Gerard Way, where Gerard and I wrote. Um, these oversized bookends, and then we had these. We brought some other creators in and, and gave them free reign and creativity to do these very character focused one shots. So, what you're going to see is a blockbuster in Darkhold Alpha and Darkhold Omega, and then you're going to get to spend time with these characters uh, within these one shots that happen in between. It's, it, it's a tweak on the format that Marvel's been doing, and when they came to me, I said, Oh, well, I conveniently, I've already just done that uh, with when I crossed over DC and the Young Animal line. But the story is cosmic horror within Marvel. It it centers around Doctor Doom and the Scarlet Witch and Wanda's ongoing battle with with Kassan, who she's been had, you know, essentially tormented by the majority of her life on and off. 
when Dark Hole opens, uh, we focus on this idea that when you look back in Marvel's lore, the Dark Hole that we know is a copy of a copy. It's, it, it's, it's written on ancient parchment, copied from ancient stone that was uh, copied from a book written in flesh. And so, you know, spoilers, I suppose, but as I sort of hinted at on social media, Darkhold is about Dr. Doom unearthing the original true Darkhold that has powers similar to the Necronomicon to the point where if you read it, it drives you completely mad. It's this artifact from the other realm, from where Kassan lives. And, you know, unfortunately, by having contact with that book, it sets off a chain reaction that will finally let Kassan enter the Marvel Universe in his full sort of destructive grandeur, no longer having to possess Quicksilver, possess Scarlet Witch, possess anyone. He can just come in, he can invade, and that's something they can't allow. So to kick off this book, it's about Doctor Doom and Scarlet Witch finding the five heroes uh, in the Marvel Universe that could potentially even uh, begin to enter the other realm without losing their minds completely. Uh, just like you see in Lovecraft, where the very idea of these gods, they're so inhuman, they're so out of our comprehension that even going into their world, even peering into their dimension, would make the average person lose our mind. So it's down to these people, the w Scarlet Witch and Doctor Doom, who, by the way, like, have their own rocky relationship, and the very fact that they're willing to work together after everything that happened in Children's Crusade with Doom having a relationship with her, manipulating her, just goes to show how dire this threat of Kassan is. Yeah. They hunt down these five heroes in the Marvel Universe, and essentially turn them into the Mad Dirty Dozen, where they have to go into other realms and confront Kathan before he comes to our world. And the unfortunate thing is, it's at the price of their own sanity. So, um, so this... they read from the book, and the only problem is, yes, they're tempering themselves with madness so they can enter his world, but how can they ever get back? Who are they going to become, and what's the price of confronting this evil themselves? So in a sense, then, this Darkhold is different uh, than the, what, I'm thinking the early 90s series, which ran about 12 or so issues, and because I don't remember seeing on those covers any any superhero or villain names, characters on there. So it's going a different, kind of a different direction, it sounds like. We're tied into that because we are, but, but we're also, yes, we're, we're dealing with a version of the Darkhold that is so dangerous that it's never been unearthed before. It is, in fact, the original one that the version from... The book from that previous series was not only a copy of, but a copy of a copy of. <laughs> um, so we're going back further in the Darkhold lore uh, and, and, and time back around to its, one of its original writers uh, in Kathan. Now, as you're coming from D.C. over to Marvel, what are some of the things that you learned while working at D.C. that you're going to incorporate in your own work now at Marvel? I think the key, the big thing for me, you know, you had asked, like, what books I read as a fan and things like that. Like, a thing that I very honestly had to learn uh, is that my job is the difference between loving a character and knowing how to make others love that character. And I think that it's something I learned the hard way on a couple books at DC um, and, 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 and overcame. But it's easy as a fan to a sort of gloss over uh, and take as a, as a given uh, a character you love that other people love. And I know that might sound ridiculous, but as a creator, you get lost in it, right? Like, say that I love, I don't know, Captain Ultra. And That is a pull. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, I, I, on purpose, like, say I love, because it proves the point, like, 
it's a fault that some of us have, and myself included, that we dive in and we just assume that if we write this amazing Captain Ultra story, uh, the relationship we have with him is the one that you as readers have or every reader has, and it's not. We have to step back from ourselves as fans, analyze what is truly unique about a character and great, and then hone a story that shows people that. It doesn't expect them to already know that. It convinces them of that every time. And that's something I really did learn on some books, where I would just, like, rush into using some characters, and editors would have to dial me back and say, okay, like, we know you love this character, but why? And rather than tell us, you have to show us this. And it's not something that I encountered before DC, because with my original work and with anyone's original work, there's no backstory. You know you have to do that, right? Because no one's ever met these characters before. But, like, say that I love Triumph, which is a DC 90s cut, like, it's easy to think that your fan experience is everyone's fan experience, and your deep-cut underdogs are everyone's deep-cut underdogs, but they're not. So you have to dial back, and you have to essentially go into your own heart Find out why you love that character and then represent that in a new and fresh way so that everybody does that. And that's something I did learn the hard way and work through, but I think it's going to be an asset of Marvel because, yeah, people in the Darkhold book, there are icons. There are obviously, like, there's the Wasp, there's Spider-Man, there's Iron Man, but there's also characters like Black Bolt who are relatively prominent, but not necessarily at the iconic status of a Spider-Man, for example, or an Iron Man. So with him, like you asked me why I like the Inhumans, well, I have to have an answer for that. And not only do I have to have an answer for it, I have to craft the story in a way that shows why, uh, why that is and convinces you of the same. And really being able to cut through the bullshit of a character and find out what's special about them, it's something I did have to learn at DC and, and something I had to learn as my, about myself as a professional versus a fan and luckily, I'm deep in it now. I'm six years into it, and, and I think that all of that is going to come uh, to its maximum potential in Marvel. I like that. I really I enjoy that passion, especially because it shows, you know, these characters are in good hands with, you know, the people involved. Well, and it's, and it's, and it's easy, like, I mean, Martian Manhunter is the best example. I could have done 12 issues of that and just having him being badass and cool, but without taking the time to, I mean to put in uh, the character work, you know, I would only be talking to the existing Martian Manhunter fans. I'm, I'm really discussing, you know, and the same with The Shadow. It's about how you structure a story. Like, you can speak to the people that are already on your side, quote-unquote, or you can tell a story and hope to bring new people in. That's why it's so enlivening to me when people say, oh, I've never really knew why I, to care, I should care about Martian Manhunter before. I've never really even known who The Shadow was before, but now I'm a fan. You, you're converting people... Uh, in many ways, that's our job, because unless you're writing these big, like, ten characters, um, you may love them, but you have to know how to explain that, and you have to know how to show that so that you can obviously please the existing fans and broaden that base uh, and show more people why that diamond in the rough in, in Marvel, uh, you know, Marvel Handbook, it used to be DC Who's Who for me, but Marvel Handbook or Marvel Handbook Book of the Dead that I bought in 1988, like, why is Swordsman cool? I genuinely love Swordsman. Mm-hmm. But if I only write a story about him doing cool sword shit, that's only going to speak to the existing Swordsman fans. I have to dig deeper than that and find out why he was cool as a character and a person all those years back and then present that anew as well to get more people in the door on characters like him. And for myself, going back to Midnighter, I, had, I was not familiar with the character of Midnighter, but then I had heard, you know rumblings on the internet, oh, you have to check this book out, you have to check this book out. And I 
I had no idea who the character was, but as a result, afterwards, I read the run. I'm like, oh, I know Midnighter now. And I enjoyed it. You know, you brought me in as like a, like a convert, essentially. Just bringing me in and enjoying something that I otherwise might not have cared for, you know? Well, and it's funny. Thank you, by the way. And it's funny because, like, a lot of what the work has been... I mean, the Marvel and DC thing is fascinating to me because there are, you know... It's a long-held industry adage that, that Marvel's the world outside your window and DC's the world as we want it to be. And I think that that comes from when the companies originated, obviously barring characters like Captain America and, and Namor and Jim Hammond, uh, Marvel is about 30 years younger than DC and the world was different. And I think that that shows, it shows in that the relative sort of godlike status of DC's icons versus Marvel's again, accepting Thor, but your average, you know, your iconic Marvel character, your Spider-Man, your daredevil are people with real human problems. Um, and it's funny because I feel like we've been a lot of the ways that more and more DC characters have connected is by injecting them with a bit of what I would say now is thought of as traditional Marvel pathos. But of the counterpoint to that is that it's all sort of based off Batman's pathos, which is the loss of a parent, even though he's a DC character. So what I mean by that is like, yeah, like we're getting people in the door on these characters uh, but if you look at what was done with Flash, you know, he went from essentially being a good person who is good because he's good uh, and driven because he's driven to having that tragedy with his mother being killed. If you look at what's been happening with, uh, where, with Green Lantern, it was a similar thing. You, you incorporate the loss of his father. These are all Marvel-style um, uh, character decisions, essentially. It, it, it's Peter losing Uncle Ben. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's Tony uh, having his own, basically being his own Uncle Ben when he's, when he's trapped in a cave uh, for who he is. And so I feel like both companies and all these characters have been doing this dance uh, of character development. And, and, and it's all been very fascinating to me because we're sort of taking cues from each other and making all the characters better. Um, but now I'm sort of moving over to a company where this is, this is how the characters have always been. You know, it's not a fault that DC characters in any way I would consider have been more like mythologies and like gods amongst mortals, because when they were created, uh, we needed that. We were in, you know, in between world wars, and, and that's where our social mythology was. And when most of the Marvel characters were created, we were in a different place. So it's just fascinating for me as a creator, because a lot of what has been done with these Silver Age icons has been infusing them with the characterization styles that Marvel perfected in the 60s and so forth. So it, it's fascinating for me jumping between companies because those types of tactics, that's how we've been sort of selling people and showing people why we should care about these DC characters in a deeper way uh, for years. You know, since, since Green Lantern Rebirth, since Flash Rebirth, that's been what we've been, we've been doing, whether, whether we were consciously doing it or not, is giving them more humanity um, but a Marvel, that's never been an issue because they they knew that trick from the start. You know, Peter Parker is us, and every character since then uh, has been sort of striving for the energy in some way or another. And you know, you mentioned about DC character or Marvel characters; they have the Marvel uh, pathos. One of the ones over at DC that has like kind of like a Marvel pathos 
is Booster Gold when you really think about it, because he's this character coming from the future who's disgraced, and he comes to our time, but he has that secret shame of, I'm a screw-up from my time, and I'm just going to come here and, you know, make up for everything. It's that whole, I wish I could, you know, fix everything. And he kind of does it in, like, a completely dishonest way. But, again, just that moral uh, pathos of it. Well, I think that's, that, 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 that is what has made these characters in many ways relatable. And, I mean, that's what I did. That's what we did with Martian Manhunter. In some ways, and in sometimes, by the way, the trick is just putting a lens on it and examining it, you know? I mean, Martian Manhunter, to me, always had that moment. Um, but it was just about explaining it and telling it in the right way. Because he wasn't like a Superman who left his planet as a baby and did lose his whole planet but left as a baby. He was an adult, and he was a cop, and everyone on Mars died. So that is a very real, like, and and honestly human reaction to take that hard uh, and look at it as a failing of yourself, even though we all know, like, we can't save them. No one person can save the whole world. But when you're the sole survivor, you have that guilt, and you you have that grief and that irrationality. So in some cases, I think it's been just reexamining the stories of these characters and finding the right lines in other ways in other times with, uh, and that's where I would say character like booster is. You're right. He already sort of has it. Uh, and then in other cases, uh, with people like Barry Allen or Hal Jordan, it's about sort of, uh, being added to those stories in a way that again, shows people why they should care. And it's always their heart first. It's their powers and their cool factor is second. Mm-hmm. It, it's the character that gets you in the door. Steve, is there anything else we should know about what you, uh, going to be looking forward to working on or other things that you, uh, you know, like to take up your time with? Oh man. Uh, well, you know, we're in social isolation. So my time is taken up by writing comics and, uh, you know, doing extensive home workouts in my office as my neighbors from across the street wonder what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> um, cause I can't go outside. Um, but well, I, there's a lot on the, on the radar for one thing sort of return to normal at Marvel. And there's a little more DC. There's a ton of the radar for creator-owned as well. You know, if you've read Midnighter, if you're excited for the boldness and sort of blockbuster storytelling that you're going to find in Darkhold, uh, look to my upcoming book, Kill a Man, which is probably going to be out in the fall now. Actually, it was a June release, but we're going to probably be waiting out the pandemic. Yep. But this is, in many ways, as an original, the most me book ever. It's, it's, it's an LGBT mixed martial arts book uh, that is about... It's about 20 years ago, uh, someone, uh, Xavier Maine, gets called Slurs in the Ring, and he, and, he, and he kills his opponent in the ring. You cut to 20 years later, his dead opponent's son is like the Conor McGregor of the present moment, and he gets catfished, and he gets outed on national television right before his title shot. And the only person that he could turn to to train for this after that is this guy that killed his father. Wow. And so it has maybe the most nuclear personal dynamic of any book I've done. Uh, but every page is raw. Every page is powerful. It's, it's written by me and Phil Kennedy Johnson, who is doing Marvel Zombies right now, and The Last God at Vertigo, and it's drawn by Alec Morgan, who did Midnighter with me, and also did Daredevil at Marvel. Uh, and so we're cooking at Marvel. We're cleaning up at DC, but there's also some really crackling originals that are coming out this year for me. And, you know, I'll be talking about it a lot on social, but give that a look. It's probably my... Probably my proudest original I've done thus far in my career. And there's never been a book that's more me. It will punch you in the face. It will be very, 
very lacking in fucks given about who it is and what it is, and uh, it's just it's just riveting to me, even when I go back and read the, the lettering proof. So probably going to be out in the fall now, probably for NYCC or National Coming Out Day, month, in October. Uh, but I just I can't talk about that book enough. <laughs> I'm just I'm so excited to take this opportunity for things to get back on track. Take this time when we're in isolation to just build up a great body of work, and then once we're back in the ring with you guys, give you stuff that you've never seen before. Well, a lot of congratulations to you, Steve. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, and and again, congrats on the work you've done, the the transition, and looking forward to what lies ahead. It's my pleasure. Now, Steve, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm primarily on Twitter and Instagram. Um, apologies to anyone who's messaged me on Facebook. That's my one little thing I carve out for personal use. Uh, but I'm everywhere to be found by anyone on Twitter at the Steve Orlando, and also on Instagram at the Steve Orlando. So there's a lot of ways to reach me. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick, and I'm Steve Orlando, and I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. It's time for Obsessed with Marvel, the Steve Orlando edition. That just came to mind. Steve, thanks for hanging out and spending some more time with us. Happy to do it. All right. Question number 183 reads as follows. Armbar. Peter's go-to. How old was Susan Storm when she first met graduate student Reed Richards? Oh, my God. Was it? Um, Well, they give you a choice, so we can hopefully narrow it down. 21, 16, 12... Or 25? I think it's 12 based on the really awkward Roger Corman one. <sighs> well, if you go by yeah, that, I, but... Uh, I hate to say it, but it was the 60s, so she was probably 16. I'm, I'm inclined to think 16 also. So Susan Storm first met graduate student Reed Richards at age, we're saying 16, and it is... No, the answer is 12. <laughs> yeah, because they really cribbed a lot from the uh, original source material for those that movie. OMG whiz. I just, okay. I guess, really, that's what it came down to. All right, so let me flip yep. to the next one. Here we go. Doo, doo. We actually, we were too moral for that question, by the way. Like, yeah, we thought I we guess. Were make, we thought we were making the immoral choice, but it was actually just much more immoral. What was the old, was the old <laughs> saying? That was the old saying, 16, I'll get you 20? Never mind. Oh, jeez. All right. Uh, Question number 1492. What a year. Uh, Whom did the Hulk and Submariner battle in Tales to Astonish number 100, which was out in 1968? It says, Whom did the Hulk and Submariner battle in Tales to Astonish number 100? Was it the Secret Empire? Was it each other? Was it the Puppet Master? Or was it the Legion of the Living Lightning? Didn't know there was a Legion to that. I just thought it was Living Lightning. Okay. Who did the... cards. (laughs) Hulk and Submariner Battle and Tales to Astonish 100 back in 68. The Secret Empire, each other, the Puppet Master, or the Legion of the Living Lightning? I kind of Living Lightning, other. by the way, another one of my deep cut characters I want to write. I'm going to go with Puppet Master, though. I mean, I've, I have no idea, by the way, but uh, you know what? No, each other. I was thinking that too, each other. I, I initially thought Puppet Master as well, but it makes sense for them to fight each other because, you know, Namor is always like a wet cat just getting angry with everybody. <laughs> Jeez. All right, so we're going to try each other. So that is correct. <laughs> Thank goodness. All right, one for two. Ain't so bad. But let's go ahead and do a third one because that's what we do, at least three. And it's question 1,566. 
And it is which TV writer producer wrote an unlimited, excuse me, an ultimate Wolverine versus Hulk limited series. That was from 2005 to 2009. Which TV That's writer? Daniel Knopf. Sue, who, what? That's Daniel Knopf. I can answer that. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're going to have an answer that's not listed here. Here we go. Uh, oh, wait, really? We'll, we'll go with, we'll go no, with. It's, it's Lindoff. I'm an idiot. Oh, I think I have that answer here. Hold on a second. You mean Damon? Yeah, no, that's who it is. All right, the choices are Joss Whedon, Damien, looks like Lindelof, I guess that's the way they're saying, Carlton Coos, C-U-S-E, and Alan Heinberg, uh, Ultimate Wolverine versus Hulk Limited Series, 05 to 09. Yeah, no, I remember that. That was that was Lindoff because it was incredibly, that's why it's 05 to 09. It was only like a four-issue series, but he was that late. We're, wow. Well, I have no choice but to go with that because I have no clue. Actually, I would have ruled out Joss Whedon, but Peter. Yeah. Well, uh, I gotta, I gotta contradict. No, no. Yes. <laughs> uh, B is correct. All right, we're two out of three. Do we want to press on for one more? Yeah, we can do one more. All right. At your guest discretion, at our guest too. All right, and we go up to two thousand, two thousand, two thousand three, two thousand three. All right. This looks like it's under the category of horror, horror heroes. And what was the name of Quincy Harker's wife? Was it Edith, Elizabeth, Agatha, or Abigail? Quincy Harker. Who's his wife? Edith, Elizabeth, Agatha, Abigail. I think it was Abigail, but I have no reason to, to back that up at all. When I hear Abigail, I think of uh, Swampy, so... Do you... I don't know. Uh, my joke one was going to be Edith, just so I can, you know, do a... Uh, what? Glasses? Family reference, but... I was going to say the, 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 the Tony Stark Iron Man glasses, Edith. Okay. No. <laughs> okay, so you're thinking Edith. Steve, again, you're thinking Abigail? Yes. Okay. Let's go um, Abigail. Um, uh, okay, I'll punch in Abigail. D. No, the answer is Elizabeth. Why didn't I say that myself, just for the record? There we go. We're done. It's the most... Name in the English language. We should have thought that. Yeah. <laughs> and even Sanford and Son use Elizabeth, you know. See, I was going to make that reference, too. 